Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lineage Speaks, the podcast. I'm your host, Martelena Dodd, and today sharing an excerpt from her book, Eyeless Mind, a memoir about seeing and being seen. We have Stephanie Dusing. Stephanie Dusing discovered, documented, and diagnosed the first known case of neuroplastic verbal visual processing in her genius artist son, Sebastian. A music teacher with many years of experience teaching people of all ages to sing, Stephanie's hobbies include stress eating, cooking, and sneaking animals into the house when her husband isn't looking. So far, she's managed one Pomeranian, nine guinea pigs, two parakeets, a dusky conure named Mimi, and a goldfish that was too big to flush. She is not divorced. When she's not cleaning cages, Stephanie is a self-taught expert in the science of visual neuroplasticity. By necessity, she is bringing awareness to the public health crisis surrounding the diagnosis, education, and habilitation of people with neurological visual impairments. She hopes to do so with some much needed laughter. Through her writing and speaking, Stephanie brings hope to the thousands of parents of children affected by CVI, that they too can take steps to improve outcomes for their children. A survivor of life-threatening child abuse, she is an unapologetic advocate for all victims of abuse, animal and human. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to be here today and I so appreciate you inviting me on your show. As you said, my name is Stephanie Dusing, and I am an author, speaker, and international advocate for people who have cerebral slash cortical visual impairment, or CVI. CVI was identified as the number one cause of visual impairment in the developed world more than 10 years ago and still doesn't have a diagnostic code. It's more prevalent than ocular forms of blindness, and recent research shows that one in 30 students in a regular education classroom have symptoms of CVI, making CVI more prevalent than autism. This is a major public health crisis. And the reason I'm here today is because in January of 2017, we discovered that my straight A honor student, genius artist, and water polo playing son, Sebastian, was almost completely blind and no one knew, not even Sebastian himself. He was 15 and just about to enroll in driver's ed. Terrified for my son's safety, overwhelmed with guilt at not knowing that my own son was blind, and completely baffled at the impossibility of the situation, we embarked on a journey to find answers. Eyeless Mind is the true story of how I, an ordinary music teacher, made a major medical discovery in the field of visual neuroplasticity. My son Sebastian is the only person in the world known to process his vision verbally which means that he sees with words, just like a bat sees with sound. Dr. Lotfi Maribet was the director of the Laboratory for Visual Neuroplasticity at Sheppard's Eye Research Institute, associate scientist at Massachusetts Eye and Ear, and associate professor of ophthalmology at Harvard Medical School, captured Sebastian's use of verbal mediation to process his vision in the fMRI and he published a paper on it in Neurobiologia in collaboration with Dr. Barry Cran, who is the director 
of optometrics at the New England Eye Low Vision Clinic at the Perkins School for the Blind. So this is a true story. This actually happened to us. And I'm honored to be here today to share our story because if my son can be walking around almost completely blind and appearing 100% typically sighted, then anybody can be. And in fact, research shows that one in 30 students in a regular education classroom have CBI. We were labeled crazy for seeking a diagnosis for my son's common visual impairment. I was using the correct medical terminology to describe my son's symptoms from the very first appointment after I discovered that my son was blind. And we had $150,000 in medical bills trying to get a diagnosis for this common and often debilitating disability. We were repeatedly verbally and emotionally abused. I was physically threatened by a neuro-ophthalmologist I'd never even met. And so I am here today so that this doesn't happen to other families because the reality is what happened to us happens every day, even with children who very obviously have CBI. And so I really appreciate it. Um, and I'm glad that you mentioned the fact that I'm a survivor of child abuse because my mother actually had Munchausen by proxy and I was repeatedly abandoned starting when I was four years old and deliberately abandoned for attention and sympathy. And in a stroke of enormous irony, I was labeled a Munchausen mom for trying to get a diagnosis for my son's common visual impairment. And so I'm here today to say, you are not crazy if you think your child may be blind and they have been misdiagnosed because people who have CVI very commonly have normal acuity. My blind son passed every vision test every year because he has normal acuity and that is common in CBI. And so I'm just here to say thank you for having me on the show and I'm really grateful for the opportunity. I'm going to share the first chapter of my book, Eyeless Mind, a memoir about seeing and being seen. Thank you so much. I abandoned Sebastian 540 times between the ages of three and six. Minus that week in February, I kept him home when my mom died. There was also the week when he had strep and assorted other days when he was under the weather. Sebastian often had an upset tummy in the mornings. Mama, my tummy hurts, was his morning refrain. Let's say another 10 days. That comes to about 520 times. I didn't mean to abandon him. I would never intentionally abandon any living creature, especially my own child. I did intentionally dump my mom though. Well, we abandoned each other, really. It's a different thing, abandoning a child. Sebastian cried every time I walked off and left him. Honestly, it was concerning, frustrating, and totally mystifying at the time. I wonder how many things would have been different for Sebastian and myself without that universe of pain that threatened to crush us like new stars in a nebula. My mom, though, oh, that's complicated. I'm certain she cried when I abandoned her. Her brief stint in modeling school and one part in a community theater place sometime in the early 1960s had prepared her surprisingly well for a life of drama. She had played woman with a toothache in one forgotten production. I can still picture the old black and white photo of her with the cast, her jaw bound up with the white bandage and knotted at the top of her head. 
the black cat eyeglasses glinted sharply in the hammock of white fabric between chin and hairline, not really concealing her embarrassment at being caught on film in such a getup. The modeling school photo is harder to process, but the fragility is there if you look. In that photo, she poses glamorously with her feet stacked properly and one hip cocked. She paid attention in class to the angle of the toes and the turn of the hip. She models a sensible brown winter woolen suit. You can sense the disappointment that after all these classes on deportment and posture, she's been assigned a thick and dumpy clot of wool for the final show. It's nothing like the elegant black satin evening gown with the plunging décolletage that was featured on the modeling school's Toronto Sun advertisement, she said. The best part of this photo is the handwritten note in black ink across the corner. Her ordinarily small and neat penmanship is a loud and outraged cursive. Where did they get that hat? I wonder that too. It was spectacularly ugly heavy and helmet-like, falling low across the forehead. It looked almost as if a feed bucket tipped over in the barn and landed with a sucking plop there on her head. Mom looks less embarrassed in this photo than in the theater shot, but there's a sadness, maybe, and a defensiveness lingering beneath the fragile swagger. I can see through the confident posture, the hand on the hip, and it's there in the tilt of the chin and the forced smile. It's the defiant, begging quality of a woman desperate for approval. She is trying to act. Devotees of Michael Shirtliff would recognize the action, to impress. But the subtext is there too, in the eyes, and it says, I'm not good enough, and I never will be. My mom was a woman with fabulous dreams that were constantly disappointed by reality. I wonder if that day at modeling school was the moment she began to create her own play. It was a one-woman show where she got all the best roles. Ingenue and Bride are boring. Everyone knows that, she said. She played those parts and the part of the long-suffering wife. But it was the most sought-after role of hero that she wanted so badly to play. She imagined herself dashing down her enemy and vanquishing all who challenged her authoritarian impulses. In the doing, she unknowingly became a method actor. She became the role most cherished by all female actors, that desire for revenge, to hurt and punish all who betrayed her innocence as a girl, transformed her Don Quixote into the spine-plotting witch. She went into the woods. And it was a transformation that was lost on her completely. My mother only ever saw herself as a Don Quixote, and in some way, I suppose she was. But the only fair princess she could find the inclination to protect was herself as Magdalena. Mom played all the roles, but she never took curtain calls for her best ones. I am certain that she cried when I left her. I can picture her with her hands over her face, shoulders shaking, Poorly mimicked sadness and fake cries of sorrow puffed through her hands, artificial, with the fingers carefully spread to conceal the lack of tears. I remember that at times like this, her eyes were watchful, not tearful. She would peek between her fingers when she thought no one was looking to gauge the effect of her performance. Both eyes and mouth would be absurdly rounded in mock grief and pretend innocence. 
A car accident had blinded one of her eyes, but both could be awfully soulless for a woman who had had a near-death experience. The official story was that Mom flipped her VW Beetle on a windy Canadian highway. It was a huge pothole, she told us. A young, buxom blonde, Mom was a ski bunny for Winterfest sometime in the late 1950s or early 1960s. She was a bunny before there were bunnies. She was a gifted and dedicated teacher who loved to sing, though she had no formal musical training. She was spending the summer in Deep River as a hotel chambermaid to earn some extra cash. There were picnics at the lake and bonfires in the evening. Deep River was the place to go for young people to meet, and meet they did. Mom met my dad and then met her pothole as she headed home to Pickering. They had one dance before she almost died. I try to imagine the screams and flames, the tangled wreck of twisted steel, but I'm not good with gore. My inner watcher is revolted and shies away. It peeks with horror at these old tales, remembering the scent of her Chanel No. 5 body powder as she sat in bra and panties on the king-size bed in San Jose. Mom told the story to us kids as she put her makeup on before she finished dressing. The smell of talcum in Chanel No. 5 was sickly sweet, absurdly infantile, and incongruous with her large breasts and plus-size figure. After the accident, Mom was in a body cast for a year. Skin grafts made cheesy pizza of her back and shoulders. I remember the silken and cool texture of the scar tissue on her left arm. It was always a few degrees cooler than the healthy skin beside it. Her left foot was crushed, and though it healed, it healed stiff and perfectly flat on the bottom. Her gait was uneven and clumping. The failed model, who before the accident wore three-inch heels daily to teach in, was forever after shot like a Clydesdale. She told us a piece of cartilage broke loose and lodged in the artery that fed the optic nerve, and it cut off the blood to her left eye. I can see in my imagination the wild white moat balanced behind her eye like a tiny funerary coin. Instead of weighing down the lids of the dead, this tiny coin sparks questions. What do the dead see? What really do the living see? I still wonder where exactly the line between the two is drawn. It's amazing that she lived. Only now, as an adult, do I begin to comprehend the agony of what she survived. I remember asking her what it was like to almost die. She saw a light, she told us, a bright light, and there was a voice that urged her to go back. And so she did for her act two. This next part of the story is blurry for me. I heard it only once when I was young. The only photo of my mother in which she looks somewhat natural is her cheesecake pinup that she had done before her wedding. In the picture, she is kneeling, angled to the side. She wears a body-fitting black turtleneck, and the angle favors the curve of her youthful breasts. The photographer told me to take off my skirt, she said. The long, shapely legs, elegant in black hosiery, are tucked beneath her her small bottom curving upwards from the cup of the soles of her feet. She is radiant. The blonde hair is perfectly coiffed in her signature updo, and the smile is fun and optimistic instead of sultry. But it's the eyes again that throw me off. 
I saw this photo for the first time when I was a child, but it wasn't until after she passed away that I realized the photo was scandalous for its time. My mom married my dad in a civil ceremony. In the photos, he is tall, dark, and handsome with a tennis player's lanky physique. My mom designed her dress after Jackie Kennedy's style with the pencil skirt and silk jacket with large self-covered fabric buttons. She wore a tiny round tiara over her chignon and her heavy black cat eyeglasses dominate her lovely face in the wedding pictures. Years later, she would tell me of her mother's wedding gift to her. As my mother arrived at the courthouse to be married, Grandma Slater pursed her lips and softly hissed in her whispery English accent. My friend said that I'm still prettier than you are. As newlyweds, my parents traveled to Boston. Dad began his doctorate at MIT while my mother began a different type of performance career. She found a job teaching at an exclusive private school and continued to work even after her first baby was born in the summer of 1966. The downstairs neighbors watched the baby while mom kept the income coming in. My sister slept in a drawer and my mom used a board beneath the cushions of the sofa to abate a sag. She hosted a dinner party with some physics department bigwigs, and I think it was the department head who sat and broke the sofa. My mother was embarrassed about that all her life. Her teaching was more successful than her dinner parties. She told me that she taught one of President Gerald Ford's children, although I don't know which one. They gave her a Christmas ornament and thanks, an Oscar. Every year at Christmas time, I'd unpack the ornaments to find the gleaming fish. The pink and purple sequin scales were prickly and oddly lifelike, if something could be lifelike in death. Once at a Chinese restaurant, my mother ordered fish. It arrived, head and all, with the gaping mouth and the large, flat, unseeing eyes that stared in shock around the dining table. I'm sure my own eyes stare right back in horror and fascination. How could anyone eat something with eyes that watched you as you ate it? The accusatory eyes looked exactly like its fabric cousins that swam through streams of glowing scented needles instead of rivers of silty water. Every Christmas, that cold, dead white sequin eye looked down upon us. We were atheists who celebrated our own versions of Christmas and Easter. We had a children's Bible, but the lessons were, these are only fairy tales for people who fear death, and scientists don't believe in things they cannot prove. Our Oscar supervised the cold exchange of gifts. Although she couldn't see out of one, both of my mom's eyes communicated more than she wished. Both eyes were mobile and expressive. They were large and blue, and in photos she stretched them wide as she smiled. It was an old trick from her modeling classes to make the eyes look larger. In practice, it gave her photos a stressed and anxious look. But I remember her eyes. My inner watcher sees those eyes. I remember them dancing with unconcealed glee or worse, dry and watchful, searching for her audience's reaction. I can still see her lips pout in an imitation of a child's sulk, the finger shadowed orbs first caricature of grief and hurt, and then triumph. She's won. They believe her. The fake sobs give way to delicate little sniffs as she tucks her chin to look up at her fans through fluttering eyelashes, never realizing that no one believes. They just don't care. 
I can still see her standing in the kitchen of our split-level ranch in Darien, Illinois, the early evening light softly bathing her. I'm hiding my too tall four-year-old self in the shadow behind the black leather easy chair in the family room. The black faux leather is stained on the headrest from men's pomade. I can see at the kitchen table, a card table, behind her with a plastic top and the four metal folding chairs around it. My baby brother's yellow plastic high chair is in the corner. She's on the phone again. It was so scary, she says into the receiver. How could this have happened? It was such a terrible accident. She pauses and takes a drag from her Salem light. Well, now the neighbors are talking about it, and it's not my fault. After all, I was so worried. Oh, yes, she was worried, all right. Not worried enough to show up on my first day of kindergarten at pickup time. Not worried enough to call the school and ask them to hold me in the office until she got there, flustered and embarrassed. Not worried enough to ask a neighbor for help or to call a babysitter to watch my baby brother while he napped. In my mind's eye, I can still see her babbling on and on into the phone. Sometimes she blames the washing machine repairman. Other times she says that the pipe burst in the basement, but there was never any water damage. It was the plumber's fault on those days. It's hard for her to keep the details straight as she drinks cold black coffee and chain smokes, rehashing the tale to her Toronto family and then her friend in Idaho. Every time she tells a new version of the tale, for two weeks I hear those words. I was so worried. She loves to draw out her vowels as though the extra sounds make up the lack of a credible story. Her big blue eyes are extremely serious, as though the listener can see through the telephone wires, into the phone box in the kitchen, through the long spiraling wire and out the handset to examine the sincerity of her expression. She was worried all right. She was worried she'd get caught. I come by my child abandonment skills rightfully. So I abandoned Sebastian too. What did we decide? 540 times, minus the week my mom died or thereabouts. Then there was the week of first grade he missed when he had strep, and the many days when he had a low-grade fever, but no obvious loss of the rippling spring of continuous movement that followed him everywhere as he played. Pneumonia in second grade would finally bring him to the couch for several scary and watchful days, but until then, he romped through every fever and cold. I remember him that late May day as a first grader as he pirouetted through the kitchen, leaped into the dining room, disappeared under the dining room table announcing, I'm Derry, king of the fairies and professor of defense against the dark arts. You can't see me. He was right. I didn't see him for 10 more years. No matter how many times I abandoned him, I didn't see him. I think my eyes were blind. I take comfort in knowing that he was indeed invisible. His camouflage was woven out of words. I could not see him. I tried. I really did. But no one saw him. Just as no one saw me abandon him, even though I left him again and again to fend for himself, alone in this world without a soul to guide his steps. 
I, who know intimately the shrieking fear of walking alone down unknown roads, every hair stiff as needles whispering desperately, Mommy, Mommy, where are you? Some deep ancient instinct kept me from screaming. Some prehistoric wisdom knew that to advertise my aloneness too loudly could invite further nightmares. Me. I abandoned my son. I still try to imagine seeing right into his head, looking through Sebastian's eyes like a grotesque inversion of the ancient marble statue, young satyr with mask. Age and responsibility try vainly to comprehend the constant unfolding newness of this child's vision of the world. Everyone saw his incredible beauty. The silky soft wisps of short blonde hair and the perfection of the planes of his cheekbones. Bleeding dimples appeared with every rosebud smile, like a sprig of baby's breath perfuming his delight. And those eyes, those unknowable eyes. Sebastian's eyes are light. They are the perfect mid-China blue deucing eyes that stun me with their symmetry. Not at all like mine. My left eye is smaller than the right, a source of vexation in every photo. Not that it matters, as I blink every time a camera flashes. They had to pull me aside at the DMV for a special session. I was holding up the line. Apparently, it's inconvenient to fellow citizens to have eyes that shy from the nuclear blasts of flash photography. Sebastian's eyes are brilliant, a reflection of his mind, but opaque to my soul. His eyes missed nothing and everything. Light ran through those dark pupils and shimmered beneath the surface of his irises like star sapphires their gentle capuchons polished by his sweep of light brown lashes. Right now, my inner watcher sees those happy glimpses of his eyes as a first grader in late May. Sebastian had tied magic cabin play silks around his waist. Six feet of rainbow-colored silk murmured from his shoulders in a ripple of liquid first grader as he burst out from under the table. He flashed me a radiant, dimpled smile before streaming off to do battle with Snape and Voldemort. Expelliarmus! We PTO ladies of Lincoln Elementary School were assembling the end-of-year scrapbook to memorialize the uncertain success of Sebastian's first-year teacher, who was taking her skills to another district school. I was sympathetic, as I had once been a first-year teacher, too. Sympathetic, and I was glad the year was over. I had looked forward to a morning with some adult conversation with the other ladies, but of course Sebastian, he had strep. Now my attention was divided between these very nice ladies, a task I had no business doing, and this magnetic child. I had been pressed into volunteering for the job of creating the scrapbook, but having no success at scrapbooking in general, I had sent a desperate email invitation to the other classmates' moms asking for assistance. It was a plea for help. There's nothing like the temptation of getting the cutest photos of your own child prominently featured in even the most mundane of projects to rally PTO moms. Come they did, and thank goodness, as I had purchased some $1,500 worth of Creative Memories scrapbooking supplies to make Sebastian's baby book, and then discovered I had no aptitude for it. 
I'd completed the first six months of his baby book while he was still a sweet, milky-scented fuzz of warmth on my shoulder. Little legs tucked up and that padded, diapered bottom just a handful. My artistic pretensions were easy to indulge when he napped twice a day. I proudly finished Sebastian's baby book when he was three. I felt a sense of achievement. I had accomplished something important. I went through the photos while he was sleeping. He was always such a good sleeper. We ate dinner with the blue-haired people at five o'clock so we could get him to bed no later than six. Sebastian was an early riser. For two solid years, I was awakened by that precious small voice and a gentle touch of tiny hands. Mama, I'm ready to play with you. He woke me at 4.45 every morning like clockwork. No matter how much you love your child, there's nowhere to go and nothing to do with the toddler from 5 a.m. until 10 a.m. It was Sebastian and me and my questionable artistic skills. I was outmatched. I gave birth to Albert Einstein's and Martha Stewart's love child, and I'm not either one. There was never a child who loved to create more than Sebastian did. He was insatiable. We colored, drew, painted, and made popsicle stick art with noodles and feathers. I gave up keeping his clothes clean when he painted. Once the first piece of paper had some color on it, nothing would do but to paint his own skin. Though, he painted naked at the easel and in the bathtub. Look, Mama, I'm putting overalls on. He laughed as he trailed blue bathtub finger paint up one beautifully muscled shoulder and down the other. He was born an artist. That day when he was three and he wanted to help with his baby book, I handed him the acid-free stickers and gave him two pages of his own. They are still there, the silky fabric of the snow-white dress on its tiny wire hanger pressed against the page, and random Halloween-themed stickers scattered about. I love to linger over that page. I touch the yellow satin on the skirt, and I can still see Sebastian swinging in the backyard. He wears his favorite outfit, a bright yellow fleece Carter's top with a bug on it and matching striped pants. He's been wearing this outfit every day now for a year, so it's 87 degrees outside, and he's dressed in yellow fleece and long pants. I swelter uncomfortably in my cotton shorts and t-shirt as I push his small bottom to race toward the eye of the sun, and I comfort myself with the fact that at least his shirt is short-sleeved now and the pants are becoming floods. I sneak the favorite outfit into the laundry every night. I tried to get Sebastian to wear other things for those two years. When he fell in love with the bug shirt, I went back to Carter's and bought similar shirts in other colors but neither the dark purple ant shirt or the orange truck one was acceptable. I thought it was the bug that he loved, but it was the color. He wore nothing but yellow from head to toe for two years. He loved yellow. The other purple and orange tops lay neglected in their drawer, a silent indictment. Why didn't I go back to the store sooner before all the yellow ones were gone? I can still see him in this favorite costume. I see his small, perfect fists clutched around the chains of the swing. Red Rover, Red Rover, send Sebastian right over. I give him a big push and catch his shining eyes as they meet mine. I dash past on his right, but not really giving the real Red Rover. He's too little for that. For now, he's delighted with the rhyme and the extra height. He's learning to pump. He's trying to propel himself by yanking the chains and finding the rhythm of the weightlessness. 
His rhythm is off, but he's trying to fly. His blonde hair flutters in the breeze, and his gray shadow brushes the battered grass beneath the swing with every pass. My heart tugs as he leaves my reach, and with every return, it lifts, relieved. I am overwhelmed with love for him. It's August, and tomorrow I will abandon him. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate, and review us if our stories help you on your journey. Follow us on Instagram at Lineage Speaks the Podcast. Until the next episode, honor the light within you and let it guide your way on.